You're listening to Accents on WUKY. My name is Katerina Stoykova. I am your host. And today with me is poet Marianne Peel. Hi, Marianne. How are you? Good, Katerina. Thank you. You are one of the most prolific poets I know. <laughs> what are you writing these days? Um, well, I have, uh, I've been working with uh, Virginia Underwood, who is publisher at Shadeland House Modern Press. And that book is due out in March now of 2024. And it is tentatively called A Chapel of Light. That title may change. And it's a book about five generations of females in my family. I myself have four daughters, a granddaughter, and then I spent a lot of time with my grandmother growing up in a little coal mining town in Pennsylvania. So approximately how many women make appearance on those pages? Uh, many. Um, grandmothers, mothers, all four daughters, granddaughter, and some tangential relatives that are females. I personally think that the mother-daughter relationships are the most complicated relationships in the world. Do you agree with me? hundred <laughs> percent. Yes. Yes. Not only for me to my mother, but my mother, myself to my four daughters. Yes. Well, I would love to hear some poems if you want to share from your new project. Uh, sure. I brought one. Um, well, I've got, got a couple here, but I can share one. This is the one on top in the little pile here. Uh, is uh, for my daughter Annalise, and she is my one, two, third daughter down, and she is currently 26 years old, and she still lives in Michigan. She lives with her grandmother on her dad's side most of the time. Um, she also is autistic, so um, I, I taught uh, middle school and high school for 32 years, but when she transferred from middle school to high school, I followed her over to the high school because I wanted to be there for her and advocate for her. Um, so we go back a long, long way, almost lost her, and um, she did not speak till she was three and a half years old. So uh, this is a poem called Notes to My Autistic Daughter, and Annalise has read this. Um, so uh, it's done in uh, like Roman numeral sections. So section one, you are three and have not spoken except for minna, minna, minna over and over again. I study sign language for mama, thank you, and please, talking to you with my fingertips and words. Paired like good wine and cheese or peanut butter and jelly, I invite you to come to this talking table. Two, in my every night dreams, I brush my fingers under your chin, under my chin, then under yours. You follow my fingers with your eyes, and I see that you mouth thank you, soundless communicating with language on lips minus the air to propel the words. You sign please and take my hand, pulling me into a meadow of blue-petaled flowers and baby's breath under a full and vibrating moon. You sign dance and climb onto my feet, swaying us in the moonlight. Three, in our awake world, I place the dusty contents of a Kool-Aid package on your lips and mine. I am inches from your face, licking the Kool-Aid off my lips, urging you to engage lips and tongue and teeth. But your eyes are glassy and far away, 
in a world I cannot see. I pry a floor-length mirror off the wall, plop you in my lap, face us toward the mirror, and lick my lips again, making cooing, smacking sounds, delighting in the gritty sweetness on my lips. Your jaw is set and firm. No amount of mmm good will convince you to taste your own lips. You are wandering in a faraway place. And so I hold you close against my soft places, singing minna, minna, minna along with you, following your lead, rocking to the rhythms you compose. That is so beautiful. I was thinking about you and your writing today and conversation that I had years ago with Dr. Richard Taylor, he said to me, he said, I am a poet of place. You are a poet of being. And then a couple of weeks ago, I was interviewing Jay McCoy, and I told him, you know, you are a poet of family because oh, he, most of his poems have to do with family. And I think that you, Marianne, you are a poet of compassion. Mm. Everything that I have read by you moves me to tears with the depth of connection, soul-to-soul connection, and truly seeing. I, uh, I've spent a lot of my life making connections with people, and uh, I'm still connected to people that I you know, knew, teachers that I knew, and um, also friends that I knew since junior high. So I, I make a huge effort to stay connected to people. It's really important to me. And, and I think it's a skill and an art at the same time. And I would love to hear another poem. Well, um, let me share this one. This is um, about, this isn't in the new book, but it's in another book, uh, manuscript that I'm working on. And it's about Uncle George, who is my partner's uncle. And he was just uh, recently in hospice. So there were a lot of, that's one of the things I've been wanting to do is be trained um, in hospice work. And there's, a, I think, a national program that has something called Tuesday Writers, where you go in and you interview the people that are in hospice and their families, and then you do writings based on the interviews. And then that's given as a book, like a chapbook-sized book, to the family in memorial of that person. So I, I think that'd be something that I would enjoy. Um, and also uh, the compassion, empathy, connection, um, I think would be would be very valued in that situation. So um, this poem um, is in the collection I'm working on that has to do with compassion, and uh, it's called Improvisation 101. We begin to study Uncle George in a cavern of disintegration, a hospital bed wrenched through a narrow doorway, shag carpeting cauterized and peeled from the concrete floor, a Hoyer lift wheeled in, a pulley installed, so George can shift from horizontal to vertical. His days become worry beads of bladder and bowel. He, make, he wakes listening for his intestines to move, an inflammation throbbing beneath his belly. Such indignity, this obsession with the inner workings beneath the flesh. He longs to be carved out like a suspended gourd, to be disemboweled of his bowels. One night, 
he slides out of his bed at 4 a.m. The next morning, guardrails are erected. Penned in even more, his bed shrinks into a cage. In his 20s, Uncle George gouged into miniature spaces in the mouths of his patients. Master detective of decay, the drill bit his weapon against root rot. He scrounges out dilapidation with the most delicate of instruments. In his 30s, his vision is castrated by glaucoma. No one will open their jaws for a blind dentist. Uncle George no longer recognizes his son and his wife. I want to see your supervisor, he says to his son. This is the worst hospital ever. Thelonious Monk and John Coltrane on a jazz loop. A muddled salve of syncopated fusion daubs his pulse with minor sevenths, with swing, with swag. A lounge lizard breathing in swirls of Marlboro and Pall Mall. A symphony of conga drums and piccolo trumpets. The ivy drip ticks the minutes away. He counts them on his fingers, an abacus of brittle bones. His body a call suspending his organs. He is a diminuendo with a rattle percussing in his throat. He breathes once every minute. His lips curl into a smile and he's gone. The shells from the military salute are tucked into the folds of the triangle flag. A grateful nation thanks your husband for his devotion to country. Aunt Pat feels the weight of widow for the very first time. The Greek Orthodox incense penetrates her cardigan. She is the last in the parade of mourners saying their final goodbyes. Mosaic icons of Mary and Jesus stand silent guard. As she kisses him goodbye, she keens, my darling, leaving lipstick on his starched white collar. Thank you. What makes a good poem? Oh, gosh. Um, <laughs> um, I guess there's two ways of looking at that. One, what makes a good poem when I've I'm reading somebody else's work, and I guess what makes a good poem when I write, those are, I guess they're somewhat the same. I approach them differently, though. But when I'm reading other people's work, I think Emily Dickinson said she knows it's a poem when, like, her head feels like it's going to split off the top. Um, for me, when I hear a good poem, I can't breathe. I find myself by the end of the poem that I've been holding my breath, and then that's that's when I know. And then at the end... There's this release. Um, so I've been taken somewhere, um, taken somewhere, realized something, um, noticed uh, the humanity in a way that I maybe never, never noticed in a particular person that's writing that or in, in what they're writing about. Um, in my own work, um, I try to... Um, I try to give the reader enough so that they can be there with me in that piece. Um, like in the last one with George, um, I, I wanted to create an atmosphere so people not only felt what it's like for his life to be diminished by losing his profession and his vision and all the other things that come with that, 
but also um, how his family was responding. And these were things, you know, that I watched and that my partner was pretty intimately involved in George's death, too. Um, so, yeah, I, I want to give readers, maybe take them somewhere they've never been, um, emotionally or geographically or uh, within a family, maybe approaching things differently within a family or in ways that are very, very familiar. Speaking of geographically, I would love to hear about your published book, No Distance Between Us. Um, yeah, this book, um, I'm very grateful to, uh, oh, here it is. I'm very grateful to um, Virginia, because the way that this happened about, it's now almost five years ago, and I was at a, a poetry conference in Berea, and it was an open mic, and um, I read a poem or two, and there was a featured poet. It was a lovely evening of sharing of poetry, and she placed a card over my shoulder. I was talking to some people at a table, and she just gave me her card, and I didn't even get to talk to her, but she gave me her card and said, I, I would like to work with you, you know, and it was, that was very exciting. So um, as I worked with her, we, we were originally working on the, the book that had to do with the five generations of women, but she knew I had another manuscript that I was working on that has to do um, with the travel. And um, so I've had the good fortune of being able to work and live for extended periods of time in other places. Um, when I travel, I do not like to, you know, I would never go on one of those tours where you're in one city for a day and then you're on a bus and you're in another city for a day. I want to stay there a month or never six Never say weeks. never. <laughs> never say never. Never say never. It could happen. <laughs> But I, I love what you're talking about, being able to connect to the place and its people. That's right. And then you get to know the people that own, like in, in China, I taught um, teachers in China in 2008, 2011, 2014. They're about five weeks each time. You get to know the guy down the street that runs the noodle shop. You get to know the people that, that come and clean, um, which I always left clothes behind. Um, so... I like to get to know the people where I am. Um, the first place uh, that I taught in um, China, it was very, very remote. It was in Guizhou province, which is the poorest province in China. And the students, the teachers that were my students, they were in their 20s and 30s. They were coming, I was four hours outside of the capital city. They were coming even further from out, uh, out of the main area, so very rural. and. Um, we didn't have um, electricity or water for a week to 10 days at a time. I lived in an old Peace Corps apartment with maps all over the place, which was lovely. But um, when I first arrived there, uh, I thought the wallpaper was kind of weird. We had to find somebody to open the door. There is a poem about that. Yes, there is. You want me to read that one? I, I would love to. Okay, that's, that's, um, that's, that was my first impression of China. We walked in, it was pouring rain. There was a lot of construction going on at this uh, university where we were teaching. And uh, we had to find somebody who would let us into the apartment. And uh, we couldn't get the lock open. So we found a little old guy that had oil that he poured in the lock and, and got it open for us. Let's see. Um, here it is. Okay. Uh, I think this is the one you're talking about. Yes. Uh, this is called Seeking Sanctuary in Guiang, China. In your country, my key does not fit the lock. No amount of twisting and turning will turn it over. An old man offers cooking oil to unhinge the lock. 
to help me enter an old Peace Corps apartment. He pours oil into the keyhole, slowly greases the inner workings. He holds my hand, guides the key through a sea of oil until the door clicks open. Maps are everywhere, floor to ceiling, studded with multicolored pushpins, marking places others have lived. The walls are speckled with small black dots. The wallpaper appears to float. I turn to thank him. When I open my mouth to say she-she, black dots fly into my mouth. Frenzied mosquitoes swarm between my lips. The old man holds my chin firm with his thumb, clears my palate as his index finger gouges insects out of my mouth. Later, at the market, I buy plastic for the windows, netting from my bed. I zip myself in, listen to mosquitoes bang against the windows. Outside, Machines run all night long. Construction crews work beneath electric lamps, breaking concrete in the moonlight. You know, I have read that book and I was there. You give me a lot. I would love to hear a poem uh, from another place you've been. Okay. Um, Well, I spent um, about... Five, six, five weeks, five weeks uh, volunteering at a refugee camp in um, Lesvos, Greece. And that came about, um, if you remember, uh, several years ago, there was a little Syrian boy that was washed up on the shore, and they showed him on the news a lot and talked about the people that were traveling, trying to escape uh, the horrible political and military situation in Syria. And people had to cross from Turkey across four and a half miles of pretty uh, treacherous water. Mm -hmm. And many, many people lost Mm -hmm. their lives in that transport. So that's right where I was working uh, on Lesvos. And the most beautiful thing I remember hearing about was... Uh, the compassion of the Greek people. They knew that as, as folks were coming across the waters, that it was hard to tell. There were, uh, most of the shore was heavy rock face. You, there was no sandy beach. You couldn't even, you couldn't land there. So what the Greeks did to let the people coming across the water know where the spots were that they could actually bring in their raft, uh, they lined up their cars and their trucks at the top of the mountain and made made a makeshift lighthouse so that people could tell where to come, uh, which I, I thought was absolutely lovely. The Greek people, I've never met such kind, generous, welcoming people. Um, and then they would provide blankets and chai tea and uh, welcome people and take them either to Moria, which was the hotspot where everybody had to go first. There were thousands and thousands of people at that camp. And that was a lousy camp. It was a former prison, lots of problems there, and not a very pleasant place to be. I was told that if you were lucky, you got to go to Keratepe, which was just down the road. Um, We had 1,200 people at Keratepe, and it was um, composed of all um, families with small children, elderly, and people that had various kinds of disabilities. And so they made it like a village. I mean, there was a place where you could send your kids with a thermos in the morning to get coffee or tea. Um, 
and they had music lessons for the kids. Uh, they had art classes. They had computer classes. Um, so, and I ended up working at a store, uh, which is not at all what I thought I was going to do. Um, they take you around to all the different kinds of things you can volunteer at. And uh, I found out through the, that process that no one wanted to work at the store because it was high tension. Um, people were literally coming off the rafts to the store and uh, they had nothing. They'd been robbed, uh, everything they had, including jewelry, wedding rings, earrings, anything they had was taken by the smugglers that got them across the water. So they were in a desperate situation. We were kind of like a Goodwill store. It was um, clothing that had been donated, and much of the clothing was completely inappropriate. You know, about 98% of the refugee camp was Muslim, and so they were looking for things with um, sleeves that went down to the uh, wrist, um, collars that were up high on the neck, they couldn't go low, um, uh, very modest clothing. And we even had a wall of shame with clothes that we hung on it that were just funny, uh, that were completely inappropriate. Uh, but people, you know, they, they, they try to send things in, but they didn't realize exactly what was needed. And we needed shoes. We had a waiting list of over 300 people waiting for shoes. Um, so I'll share one of the poems. Um, this is um, Gino. Uh, the only way I survived in that camp, uh, working in that store, was with the help of translators. Um, English was considered the camp language, the common language, but many people did not speak English. And so the translators I had um, were just incredible people, and they were there all the time. And uh, the Kurdish translator that I had was Gino, who was a young woman. Um, it just helped me beyond belief, um, feel at home, uh, feel valued, and worked hand in hand with me. Um, so this is called A Gift from Gino, the Kurdish translator at Karatepe Refugee Camp. One, that morning an old tabby darted out of the shoe room, scrabbled over my feet, exited the back of the tent, between refugees seeking shoes and clothing. She cinched her babies at the scruff of their necks, teeth sunk in enough to secure the hold, carried them out to the fields behind the shop, one by one. By noon, a nest of kittens in the long grasses. There, the song of morning doves lullabied her babies to sleep. Two, that morning, I had no shoes to offer, only flip-flops for a man from Syria, two sizes too big, clownish shoes, good for a laugh, for a choreographed stunt. I had no maternity underwear to offer his wife, belly swelled beneath her burqa. No hijab, the plastic bin was empty. She longed for deep green gold thread to frame her face, to reveal the green flecks of light in her eyes. I had no football shoes for their daughter. She showed me her left foot was stronger than her right, kicked an invisible ball with one foot, then the other. I had no socks for the baby, toes cold before the morning sun warmed everything, even the rocks at the roots of olive trees. That morning I was bursting with no, my mouth full of, I'm sorry, and this is all we have, and I wish I had more to give you, and I'm sorry your feet hurt from navigating rocks in the olive garden.
I could not stop from crying. Three. That morning, Gino, the Kurdish translator, arrived with her mother. She wanted to show me this matriarch who had clutched the side of a raft with all her strength and stamina as they crossed the treacherous sea between Turkey and Lesvos. And later that morning, this woman would lie on a gurney as a surgeon carved a tumor from her brain. Four. On that morning, Gino asked why my mascara stained my cheeks, why my eyes were red and swollen. I told her about the many bare feet I had held in the palms of my hands, the many souls I could not protect with shoes I did not have. Five. Gino put her hand on the small of my back, guided me to the back room, pointed to a loose gray sweater on the floor beneath the men's Arabic robes. This is my crying place, she said. This is where I come to cry when I cannot stop my crying. I will share my crying place with you. Six. That next morning, I found the kittens huddled in a nest of grasses beside the olive tree, eyes open just a little, just enough to let in the light. Oh, what is there to say after that poem? You know, I have read it quite a few times. I have heard you read it a few times, and it never leaves me indifferent. Yeah, I will always remember the people I worked with there. Um, there was a, it's not in this book, but there was a young man I worked with, and he was prone to um, getting in arguments, let's put it that way, with other people. And no one wanted to uh, give him the position of being a translator in the store. But I had talked to him a lot, and he kept coming in. And I asked, you know, if he could stay in the store. I thought he would be very helpful. Uh, he, he spoke Arabic. And he was absolutely wonderful. So, but he had shown me pictures of himself all beaten up from where he had come from. And uh, many of the people didn't talk about their histories very much. Their lives were starting over in the refugee camps. So you could find out usually where they were from and maybe a little bit about what they had experienced there, but all of them had left very, very dangerous situations. And they, we weren't even allowed to take any pictures. That's why I have no pictures of any of the residents at Caratepe, because some of those people were on watch lists from other countries, and they would have officials that would come to the gates and look for them. So we didn't want to put any pictures on social media, uh, to identify people that were hiding from very, very desperate situations. So they're, they're, the memory of them is all in my head, and I can still conjure their faces, which is really wonderful. And what has the reception been from readers on that book? Uh, this book, they people have enjoyed it because it takes them different places. Um, you know, most people... Uh, don't usually have a chance to work at a refugee camp, you know, unless they're willing to travel. I, I was only willing to, uh, able to do that, I should say, because I sold my house up in Michigan, and by the time I paid for a new kitchen and flooring and all those things you do when you sell a house, I ended up making, uh, walking away with $10,000, and I knew what, I wanted to do a service project with that money. I didn't know what that meant, 
And so I just set it aside. And then one of my old students, Patrick, uh, I saw that he had posted, he was over at Caratepe. And his mother, that's the village where his mother was originally from. So they were both volunteering over there. And I asked him, you know, how, how can I do that? Can I come over? I want to help. And so he hooked me up with a, the company he was working with, um, nonprofit called Movement on the Ground out of Amsterdam. And so it was a long process. It took almost a year to get approval to go over there. And then they, they have an apartment in town, uh, and you pay like $25 a day to stay in the apartment. It was a very expensive volunteer job, but I will, I will never forget the people I met and and the fact that I was, for many of them, the only face of the Western part of the world that they had ever seen. And so offering time and energy and care for them um, I know uh, we had two days a week where we sat outside in incredible heat and people would line up to sign up for an appointment to get a kit of clothes and they could do that once every 60 days. And um, people automatically in that part of the world queued up, men in one line, women in the other. And um, there were people in the line who spoke more than one language that came up, stood next to me for hours in the hot sun. Um, and, you know, I said, you don't have to do this. And he says, no, you know, we know you are here out of the goodness of your heart, and we want to thank you. Mm-hmm. And so they stood next to me and helped translate so that I could schedule people to get clothes. Um, we, we scheduled people in, uh, usually two families every hour would come in. And uh, we'd try to fit them with clothes and shoes and maternity stuff and anything that we could find for them. Um, we didn't have really any toys for the kids, but we did have clothes. And um, so it was, uh, it felt good when, when the family left and they, they had clothes that would last them for two months. So China, Nepal, Turkey, Greece, probably other places, and now Lexington, Kentucky. How does Lexington seem to you after all these adventures? <laughs> well, I've uh, I've been working with Lexington um, in the literary community for years now, mm-hmm. and a lot of that started even before the pandemic. Um, but your class was one that I took at Carnegie, uh, several different classes, and then the boot camp, and so I met lots of people through that experience. I knew about the Car- the Carnegie Center is one of the main reasons we moved here because of the classes they offer, the access to it. You know, we looked at the town. We originally were thinking about Louisville, but Lexington, uh, my partner did his grad work here. And so he was familiar with it, but that was 30 some years ago. So the whole southern part of Lexington has all been built up since he was here. So there are many, many new things for him too, but he was familiar. And I had lived in Madisonville, Kentucky, with him for about three years, several years ago. And um, so we picked Lexington largely because of the literary community. And so both of us are writers, and we frequently, um, we have one of those uh, subscriptions for coffee at Panera. And just about every day we're at Panera for a few hours writing. And uh, we can just share things with each other across the table as we get a draft. So he's my first reader, first editor, along with some of my friends, uh, Therese and uh, Patricia and Hope, former teacher I worked with. And you also took place in Libby Jones's project. 
Please tell us about it. Yes, the Coming of Age Project. And that started, now it's almost three years ago. And that got started during the pandemic. The first me- coming of age, they applied through the Kentucky uh, Humanities Kentucky Foundation for Women, uh, got a grant, Libby did, and uh, Jules Unsel. Those two were the main leads in the project. And then they put a call out for women that were 60 years up and up, 60 years and older, and they wanted uh, to work with women for a full year. A combination of large group meetings, small groups that we developed that met about every two weeks, um, and then the end result was to put together an anthology. And each of us ended up with about four pieces. And the really beautiful thing about this book is that um, each piece that we wrote, we were able to write a little uh, descriptor, a context for that piece, either what inspired it or why we wrote it. Um, it, what our thoughts, what, what, what was the impetus for that particular poem? And that's really a fun part to read about the book from, from a writer's perspective and just from a human being's perspective. I love to know what, uh, what created that poem, what happened that caused you to write about that. So a uh, beautiful book. And then they re-upped. There were 30 of us in the group. They re-upped uh, for another grant, and we were together for another year. And so through that process, I got to know a lot of people, a lot of writers, um, poets, nonfiction people, short story people, people working on memoir, uh, visual artists were part of the group too. Um, Some like Marta, who uh, does visual art and poetry. Um, So I met all these creative people and this place began to feel like home even before I got here. And um, so that project, we just finished the second round, uh, and it doubled in size, 60 women. And uh, during that time, we we also developed writing workshops. So there were, not too long ago, a few months ago, we had three Thursdays that we went out to the Owsley Fork uh, Writing Sanctuary that Linda Bryant and her husband Coleman own. And uh, we paired up, uh, I was paired with Marta, and she did a workshop on color. I did a workshop on ekphrastic writing and using art as an impetus or a stimulus for writing. And they went together really well. We had two other Thursdays. And then many of those pieces that were started in that workshop um, became part of the anthology, the second one. And so right now, I don't, I'm not sure where the project is, if it's going into a third phase or not. It's up for discussion. I know lots of us want them to continue, but it's a tremendous amount of work for the facilitators. And we all chipped in, but they were doing the lion's share of the work. And um, so I'm, I'm hoping it goes into a third session. I hope that works out for everyone. We have time for one more poem. You can choose any poem that you want to share. Oh, well... Um, let me share, I do um, a lot of, I guess what's called poetry of witness. When the, I've written things about what's happening in Israel and Hamas uh, and in Gaza, uh, Gaza Strip, but um, I wrote a lot of um, pieces about uh, Ukraine. Um, so that war has been going on for well over a year. I did a lot of research. You can go down a million rabbit holes when you start reading articles. But um, years ago, I shared a a book with my students called Faithful Elephants that was about three elephants uh, during World War II in Tokyo. And those, all the large animals by order of the government had to be put down, euthanized. 
and uh, the elephants had no part of it. When they tried to poison the potatoes, they'd separate them out. They would eat only the ones that didn't have poison on them. And so those poor elephants ended up starving to death. That's the only way that they would, uh, that they died. So there's some memorials to them at the um, a zoo in in Tokyo. So when the Ukraine war started, I did a lot of research on what was happening to the animals. And so um, this poem is the result of that research. Um, and it's called All Things Both Great and Small. Blessed be Krylo, the zookeeper, who comforts Horus, the 17-year-old elephant, during Russian shelling of Kiev, sleeping next to him every night, stroking his gray cheek, slipping him stolen apples from his jacket pocket. Blessed be May the lemur, so terrified by the bombings that she abandons her newborn baby. Blessed be the worker who feeds the newborn lemur formula through a syringe, who wraps this baby in fuzzy soft cloth to mimic his mother's warmth. Blessed be Ivan Rebchenko, who pedals his bike to the zoo, who leans over a balcony enclosure, offering bananas to the 17-year-old giraffe. Blessed be the giraffes and the elephants, who are too massive to be moved to underground shelters. As they escape their enclosures, they roam the streets teeming with Russian tanks. Blessed be Valentina Daikonova, who arrives with dates and bananas and a Coca-Cola bottle filled with tea for Tony, the 47-year-old gorilla. Blessed be the ostrich who lies dead on the ground at Echo Park, legs in berserk angles, feathers flattened to the asphalt. Blessed be the keepers living at the zoo, organizing an evacuation corridor saddling the donkeys and ponies with blindfolds as they're guided onto truck beds. Blessed be the animals, used as target practice by Russian soldiers, inebriated with lethal doses of vodka. Blessed be all the zookeepers, amid the relentless bombardments of Ukraine, who are compelled to euthanize with tender mercy their fragile, frightened, beloveds. Thank you. I have one last question for you. And this is a question that I ask all my guests who teach creative writing. What is the most important thing you teach your students? If you want them to remember one thing from your class or workshop, what is it? Um, I think, I think that would probably be to, um, to believe um, in their own voice and to believe that what they have to say matters um, and to take the risks to put those words on the page and share their story. I tried to really remind them that they all have stories. They're not blank slates walking into my classroom. They have many, many stories to tell and, um, and to realize that and to realize their voice matters. Thank you, Marianne. Thank you, Katerina. It was good working with you.